weddings are happy events because for months, the bride and groom have prepared in anticipation of the day. You know, family and friends have likely flown in from across the country to witness the joyful union. From the flower girl to the photographer, from the guest to the minister, and most especially, the bride and the groom, everything and everyone is oriented around that moment when the couple says, The heart of the wedding and the heart of marriage, thanks Nick, is that unconditional commitment. Till death do us part, I do. Uh, As many of you know, the bride and the groom have no idea what's coming. (laughs) They have no idea what sicknesses or health, what riches or poverty might await them. And it's precisely because of that ignorance that makes the commitment so meaningful. It's what makes it so worth celebrating. This is not the beginning of a contract of cost-benefit analyses. This is the beginning of a covenant of unconditional love and fidelity. In marriage, you sign a blank check to your spouse and say, whatever happens, I'm good for it. You can count on me. That's what makes weddings so joyful. And that's what makes divorce so painful. How can something that begins with such promise end with such pain? This morning, we continue our series in the book of Malachi, as we see that divorce and marital unfaithfulness is by no means a new thing, a new problem for the people of God. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Malachi. We're in our our fourth week here in the book, the last one of the Old Testament. Written around 460 BC, Malachi was preaching to a disillusioned and disappointed nation. Uh, You see, the Lord had made incredible promises to Abraham in around 2000 BC to bless him and his descendants. Many of those blessings came true in the short term, but they especially came true around 1400 BC when the Lord miraculously delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Uh, You see, at Mount Sinai, God promised to be their God and they would be his people if they would just obey, if they would keep his commands. But basically, the next 900 years of Israel's history is them failing to do that. Uh, Sure, every once in a while, they have a a good king and a revival of true religion. But the truth is that for the majority of the history of the nation, it was one of relational injustice and religious idolatry. They refused to walk in God's ways. And so the curses of the covenant, which God had said would happen if they walked unrepentantly in disobedience, they fell. And in 586, the Lord raised up the Babylonians to conquer the nation of Israel and to carry them off into slavery. Yet the Lord relented. In his mercy, he caused a remnant to return to Jerusalem around 537 BC, about 50 years later. He graciously restored them and promised to be with them. Um, But over the next few decades, leading up to 460, when Malachi is preaching, you know, as much as Israel was glad to be back in the promised land, things looked bleak. Their crops were failing. The Davidic king was nowhere to be seen, their supposed savior. 
Their enemies oppressed them. Their leaders were corrupt. And God himself, who promised, I will be with you. Like in years past, I will be with you. Well, he seemed to be absent. Had he forgotten his promises? Could he be relied upon? Is obedience even worth it? These are the questions the Israelites were asking. And so it's in this context that the Lord raised up Malachi to preach. In chapter 1, we saw God reiterate his sovereign electing love for Israel. Uh, yet they doubted his love as evidenced by their half-hearted devotion and profane sacrifices. And then last week, we saw that Israel's priests, far from being zealous for God's name and glory, instead walked contrary to his word and caused many to stumble. So it is that we arrive at our passage this morning. We'll be in chapter 2, verse 10, and we're going to go all the way up through chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to have two sections this morning, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time in our first section. Now, the main idea of our passage is simply this. In marriage and in society, the Lord will judge covenant unfaithfulness. In marriage and in society, the Lord will judge covenant unfaithfulness. So look with me at Malachi 2, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness 
against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Well, our first section is found in chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, entitled, Faithless in Marriage. Whereas previous sections began with God's direct speech to the priests, here in verse 10, we get Malachi's preaching to the nation. And so he says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? You know, it's interesting. Previously, we've seen the, the faithlessness of Israel to God, but that's not what verse 10 highlights. Verse 10 says, why are we faithless to one another? You know, previously God's been saying, you've not been loving God. And today in our passage, he's saying, and you've not been loving neighbor. Most especially your nearest neighbor, the wife of your youth. Uh, literally, the, Malachi's question there, that third one, why are we faithless a man to his brother? Why are we faithless a man to his brother profaning the covenant of our fathers? You see, Israel was a family, right? They were all descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. At Mount Sinai, they had covenanted not only with the Lord, but with each other to do good to one another, to pursue holiness together and the worship of Yahweh. They were literally, biologically, brothers and sisters. And yet, their brotherhood goes deeper than that. It's not just biological. What does Malachi say? Have we not all one Father, capital F? Has not one God created us? You know, Malachi's point is simple. We're all part of God's family. He's our Father. He's adopted us as his spiritual sons and daughters. All the more reason to show steadfast love and faithfulness to each other. They've been doubly adopted. They're doubly brothers and sisters. Yeah, verse 11 reads, Judah has been faithless. Uh, literally, you see that word faithless in our translation. Uh, they've been treacherous. Judah has been treacherous. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Here we see that we cannot disconnect our worship life from our interpersonal life. While Israel was busy with religious festivals, the truth is that they were profaning God's sanctuary. Well, how so? By marrying the daughter of a foreign God. The point isn't that these women looked different or that their skin was different. This isn't an argument about race. The point is that these men were marrying women who worship foreign, false gods. And that's a problem precisely because it would lead Israel to themselves worship foreign false gods, right? Do you remember the Lord reminded or he uh, warned them this would happen before they entered into Canaan? The reason they were supposed to put the Canaanites under the ban is so that they would not intermarry because in intermarrying, they would start worshiping the false pagan deities. However, Israel failed to obey God's word, right? Uh, the nation failed to obey. You also, we know about Solomon's many wives, 
that led his heart astray. Uh, We know about King Ahab in the northern kingdom, marrying Jezebel and beginning to worship Baal. You know, Israel had a long history of marrying foreign Yahweh-hating spouses. Uh, They would marry foreign women and they would marry foreign men. They would give their daughters to foreign men. Uh, God had called them, however, to marry only within the covenant community of Israel because it was only there that the true knowledge of God was found, that, that the Lord Yahweh was worshiped. And so the same principle applies to us today as Christians. Uh, as Christians under the new covenant, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Christians are free to marry only in the Lord. Or the apostle Paul talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. When the Bible uses this language, the point is not that all unbelievers are terrible people. That's not what's going on. The point that is, the point that's being made is that in marriage, you are opening up your life in the most intimate of ways to the influence and counsel of this person. That's the way it should be, right? There should be this intimacy of influence, the problem, therefore, is that if you're a Christian trying to grow in Christ-likeness, trying to pursue a certain goal, and you marry someone who's not a Christian, well, they have a different definition of human flourishing. They have a different definition of what success in life looks like. Because for the Christian, success is taking up our cross and dying daily, uh, living for the glory of God. But for an unbeliever who doesn't love Christ, that, that just won't be their, their goal. And, and so it is that a Christian will be significantly frustrated if they marry an unbeliever. Not because that unbeliever, again, is going to be a terrible person, but insofar as your goal is and should be to continue to grow in Christ-likeness, it will just be all the harder uh, married to someone who doesn't share that same goal. You know, marriage is like a house. Uh, The point is that Christ is to be the bedrock and foundation of that marriage. But can you imagine a building with two different foundations? which don't accord and don't align, right? Made of different materials for different purposes. It would be hard to build a building like that. Well, likewise, it's hard to build a life together without the shared foundation of Christ. Uh, So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you who are single uh, to continue to wait upon the Lord. Uh, If marriage is something that you desire, uh, let me encourage you to, to go to the Lord with that desire. Uh, Bring your tears and your sorrow and your disappointments. Uh, Ask for his help. Um, It may feel lonely at times when your brothers and sisters in Christ, when they marry or have kids. Um, Let me encourage you to find other brothers and sisters that can can walk with you, can weep with you, uh, that can pray for you, pray for the Lord's strength and encouragement. Bring in another Christian to ask for their prayers and support. You may wonder why God hasn't given you the desire of your heart, uh, but I can assure you that your heavenly father loves you very much and he does care for you. Uh, Talk to me or another trusted Christian friend if you have questions. Verse 12 concludes the matter of marrying these foreign women. It states, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In short, if you're trying to marry these women to get extra offspring for yourself, well, just FYI, any children born to these foreign women, these unbelieving spouses, will be considered illegitimate. 
Uh, They will be cut off from the tents of Jacob and not considered part of the covenant people of God. So that even if a father, if that father brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, right? God is not going to accept that worship. The, The point seems to be that the father maybe knew he was sinning by marrying this idolatrous woman, but he thinks, well, you know, I can just sacrifice, you know, there's grace, right? And the point is, to obey is better than sacrifice. Don't try to worship God while living in open rebellion against his commands. It doesn't make your situation better, but worse, to think that you, by your good efforts, can somehow try to appease God and walk in disobedience. Well, in verses 13 to 16, we get Malachi's second complaint. His first complaint is that they were marrying unbelieving foreign women. Here he states, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from your, uh, with favor from your hand. But you say, why does, he not? why does he not? You know, as we've seen, Israel was not lacking in the externals of temple worship. They were giving offerings and sacrifices. And if you just, just looked at the outside, they even seemed zealous with tears and weeping and groaning. But they were hypocrites. Because not only were they marrying foreign women, they were divorcing their Israelite wives. They were being faithless, not just to the covenant in general, to pursue the Lord and follow Yahweh, but they were being faithless and treacherous to their wives. So in verses 14 and 15, we get a number of descriptions about the intimacy that God intends for marriage to have, and how these men have forsaken it. So you notice how verse 14 describes these, the women, the Israelite wives, as the wife of your youth, your companion, and your wife by covenant. Uh, these are, are intimate and tender words. She's the wife of your youth. Will you abandon her now, after so many years of her faithful love and devotion? She's your companion. Have you no respect and admiration, no affection or delight in her presence? And she's your wife by covenant. Now, now what is a covenant? At at its core, a covenant is a commitment of devoted love uh, from two parties who are not blood relatives to become as if they are blood relatives. Two sides, Two families become one. Two people become one forever. That's one of the fundamental differences between a contract and a covenant, right? It's why we have contracts with AT&T and T-Mobile. Nobody wants to get locked in long-term to those things, right? And that's why they advertise no long-term contracts, You see, the whole point of contracts is how voluntary and breakable they are. That's their value. You get in when it meets your needs, and you get out when it doesn't. The Lord doesn't blame you for switching cell phone carriers. Uh, He doesn't rebuke you as being unfaithful to Verizon. But a covenant is different. The whole point of a covenant is that it really is till death do us part. In marriage, you remember David and Jonathan, do you remember they covenanted in love for one another, in friendship? They're saying, I'm with you to the end. And that's exactly what happens, right? In marriage, 
husbands and wives covenant to one another. They commit. But the Israelite men were treating their relationship with their wives like a cheap contract, ready to be thrown out at the slightest inconvenience. Uh, verses 15 and 16 pose a number of translation challenges. We, we, we don't have time to, to get into them. But notice how verse 15 begins. Did you not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So not only was the Lord a witness to their union, uh, he's the one who actually made them one. So it's not fundamentally the, the pastor or the priest or the justice of the peace who marries the husband and wife, the man and the woman. It's God. God is the one who joins them together. This is what Jesus is getting at in Mark 10, when he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh, quoting Genesis 2.24. Then Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. Uh, this is the, the union that God effects, which is why verse 16 states that it is fundamentally violent for a man to not love but divorce his wife. He is tearing one flesh apart. It's a violent act. And it opens her up, leaving her vulnerable to all kinds of abuse and hardship. What does it mean to have a portion of the Spirit in their union? Uh, this phrase is translated differently uh, a number of different ways. Different translations will show that. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure what this means. So maybe in glory, we'll find out. Um, if you know, let me know. Uh, the point seems to be that the spiritual union of the husband and wife, right? So they're physically, they become one flesh, but also spiritually as well. And, and notice that last statement that Malachi makes about the, the quality and the purpose of marriage there in the middle of verse 15. And what was the one God seeking? Or it could be just what was the one union seeking? Godly offspring. So in short, marriages did and do exist for the purpose of godly offspring. Marriage exists for the purpose of begetting godly offspring. Now, of course, it exists for companionship. It exists for more than children. But creationally, it's not meant for less than children. Uh, this means that in marriage, husbands and wives should not deliberately avoid having any children. Now, there might be any number of reasons why a couple might not be able to have children. Uh, a couple might get married later in life. And so they're no longer able, they're not able to have children at that later stage. Uh, there could be health reasons that were known about before entering into marriage that leads a couple to be unable to have children. Or there could be circumstances that arise in marriage that makes it impossible for them to have biological children. You know, none of these factors in any way diminish the love and the beauty and the covenant commitment of a husband and wife. In no way does the inability to have biological children disqualify a marriage or somehow make it second rate. Uh, but, but Malachi does state that God intends for marriage ordinarily to lead to offspring. So in the Bible, God puts three things together. He puts marriage, sex, and kids together. Ordinarily, 
marriage leads to sex leads to kids. And, and so that is that if you're married, you shouldn't deprive one another of sex or of kids. Now, this doesn't mean that a couple might not forego in both ways. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that, that a couple might forego intimacy for a season of time to give themselves to pray. And likewise, there might be reasons why a married couple decides it's unwise to pursue having a child or having another child for a time. You know, these are completely legitimate. But just as God does not sanction people to pursue sex and kids outside the covenant bounds of marriage, right? You can't just say, I don't want the marriage part. I just want the sex and kids part. Or I don't want the marriage or the kids part. I just want the sex part. No, God kind of, it's a package deal. Well, well, just as God doesn't sanction people to pursue sex and children apart from marriage, neither does he commend marriage and sex while deliberately avoiding children on purpose altogether. Uh, God desires offspring. But of course, not just any offspring. He wants godly offspring. Uh, he wants godly offspring. What does it look like to pursue godliness for your children, if you're a parent here this morning? Uh, well, it means in part that it starts with your own walk with the Lord, right? Our children are always watching and imitating us, whether we want them to or not. Uh, if they imitated your example, would it be a godly one? Uh, can you say like the Apostle Paul, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Uh, can you say that to your kids? Of course, being involved in a gospel preaching church is part and parcel of that. Uh, if you want your kids to take their faith seriously and committed to the church, then, then you do so as well. You know, talk with them about the sermon, sing songs together at home, invite singles and couples and families over to help your children build other relationships uh, with other Christians. And, and so I, I, th I do think this raises the question, um, where does this leave us with the, God's desire for godly offspring and single people or, or couples who are unable to have biological children? There's so much that we could be said here, um, but for starters, because God has adopted us into his heavenly family, you know, Christians should have a special heart to adopt and welcome in children. God has shown such extravagant love to us when we were strangers from him. The, the natural overflow that should be our lives is expressing that love, being conduits of it to others. Uh, what a great way to display that in adoption. As a church body, we should seek to get to know and invest in the lives of little ones and the youth around us. So let me just pause here and say thank you to this congregation. You guys have done such an amazing job of this. I am, as your pastor, I am so encouraged and so thankful. On Sunday morning, on Sunday night, you like little three-year-olds are talking to grown-ups and, you know, I mean, it's just, I, I, as your pastor, it has been one of the most encouraging things. Uh, so thank you, brothers and sisters, for what a great job you've done, not only for my own family, uh, but just for the congregation at large. More, more than that, um, more than just investing as singles and couples in the kids uh, of those around you, who are the godly offspring that God desires now? Well, it's, it's Christians, isn't it? 
Uh, In the Old Testament, godly offspring were primarily pursued through physical generation. Yet now under the new covenant, the mandate to seek godly offspring, that is children of God, is through evangelism and discipling all nations. Uh, The great commission to make disciples, the mission of the church, right? When we make disciples, we are making children of God, godly offspring. And so whether you're single or married or married with kids, I hope that you will be especially devoted to this task. Depending on your life situation, that will significantly change who you are primarily seeking to evangelize and disciple. Uh, Parents are given the hard, humbling, and glorious task of seeking to make disciples, especially of their children. And non-parents are called to the hard, humbling, and glorious task of seeking to make disciples of all whom God brings in their path. Uh, Brothers and sisters, God is seeking such offspring. May we be faithful in our discipling and catechizing and praying and laboring to this end. So back in Malachi, though, um, how should the men of Israel respond? The middle of verse 15 states, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The end of verse 16 repeats the same command, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Men of Israel, do not be faithless to your wives. Don't divorce them. Don't pursue foreign women. Instead, positively, don't do those things, but guard yourselves. Specifically, guard yourselves in your spirit. This could be a reference to, you know, the soul, the spirit, the immaterial part of the human. But given the reference in verse 15 to the spirit, uh, the portion of the spirit in their union, you notice how the spirit is tied to the, the marriage there in verse 15. And then he says, guard yourselves in your spirit, 15 and 16. I think the point is actually guard yourselves in your marriage. Don't let it get to the point where you don't love her and divorce her. And so you cover your garment with violence. No, before you get there, guard yourself. Uh, If you're married, whether husband or wife, what, what does it look like to guard yourself in marriage? Well, we need to guard ourselves, right? Because Satan hates marriage. We need to guard ourselves because the flesh just wants to pursue our own selfish ends. The the world tempts us. So we need to guard our marriage. Um, Marriage is not like a waterfall. A, A waterfall is going to do what it's going to do. And if you stand there on the side and you just watch it, it's going to keep on going, keep on falling on its own. Keep doing its now, marriage is like a garden. It's a garden that must be guarded because there are pests and rodents and weeds and bad soil that seeks to choke out and kill the beautiful growth and fruit and flowers. You know, if we sit back, if you sit back on the sidelines, just hoping the garden will prune itself, just do its thing, it will not be the type of garden you are hoping for. Uh, Marriage is a precious thing worth guarding. So how do you guard yourselves in your spirit, in your marriage? Well, again, we could spend all Sunday here, but 
to make a list. You pray together. You pray for one another. You confess quickly, repent quickly, forgive quickly. You go on date nights, pursue hobbies together, laugh together, cry together, encourage one another. You're accountable to your spouse and to others. You flee lust and emotional attachments. You pursue regular intimacy. You worship together, encourage outside friendships. You cut off websites and bars and habits that lead to pain. You're alert to bitterness and resentment or indifference in your own heart or in your spouse. You seek outside help when your garden begins to overgrown with weeds. You pursue Christ together as your highest goal and treasure. You know, I remember when Kate and I were dating, this diagram blew my mind. You probably, many of you know it. It's the, the triangle diagram uh, with you and your spouse kind of down low and God at the top. If you want to get closer to one another, pursue God, kind of move closer to God, and you will in turn grow closer to one another. Uh, when he is your shared delight, you'll have so much to talk about and rejoice over together. Uh, again, there's more we could say about a husband and wife should pursue a physical, spiritual union that glorifies God. But let me encourage you to come back to Lutheran Church of the Savior tonight at 5 p.m. where Josh Marrero will be helping us do just that. Before we turn to our second and brief point, um, let, let's just consider four final applications related to marriage. Uh, that would be important to say. So number one, though divorce is ordinarily wrong to pursue, the New Testament, the Bible, does allow for divorce in cases of adultery or abandonment. And from Exodus 21, I think it's clearly physical abuse. In each one of these cases, one of the spouses has, in effect, broken the marriage covenant through their adultery or uh, flight and abandonment or abuse. That spouse, the offending spouse, has broken it. And so if the innocent spouse initiates divorce, in some sense, they're just recognizing that what the other party has done has already broken the covenant. So I think the New Testament clearly does allow, doesn't recommend, but it permits divorce in those cases. Uh, second, breaking the covenant commitment of love that is marriage is so serious because covenantally committing in love is the way that God relates to his people, right? So that was true in the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai, the language used is of, of Israel and the Lord, Israel as the bride and the Lord as the bridegroom, the husband. Uh, you know, a covenant is two people, not of blood, coming together, committing to one another. You see that with David and Jonathan. You see that with the Lord and Israel. Israel ain't got nothing to do with the Lord because of their sin. They are alienated from him, but he covenantally commits and says, you are my people and I am your God. That, that's in the Old Testament. It's covenantal language, marital language. But of course, when we come to the New Testament, we've already read Ephesians 5, uh, where this is drawn out explicitly, that marriage exists as a living parable between Christ and, this church, and his church. And thus it's because of that lofty goal uh, because marriage has so much at stake that divorce is so serious. Because divorce, wrongly pursued, lies about who God is and who his people are. Divorce wrongly implies that God would leave and desert his people. When he would never do that. He would never do that. Uh, third, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. So when somebody chooses to divorce without biblical grounds of adultery, abandonment, or abuse having occurred, it is sinful, but it's not unforgivable. 
You know, the Lord Jesus loves to demonstrate his mercy and his compassion upon the repentant and the contrite. And, and so forth and finally, guard yourselves in your spirit. Um, it is never too late to begin that gardening work. Uh, it is never too late to begin that guarding work. Until the moment when the divorce has occurred, there is always hope and change for renewal by the grace of God. Uh, so it doesn't matter how many years or how many decades of neglect your garden has seen. Uh, the Lord loves to bring restoration and renewal through his word. So if, if you feel like, yeah, we didn't really nip the issue in the bud. The roots and the tentacles have multiplied. Let me encourage you. There is hope in the gospel. Uh, talk to me or another trusted Christian friend uh, to begin that work. Uh, don't ignore the problem, but seek by the grace of God to guard your marriage for the glory of Christ. Let, let's turn now to our second and briefer section in verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, entitled, The God of Justice. I don't know why Malachi does it, but the language and the themes here are repeated uh, at the end of, in chapter 4, really identically about the messenger and, and Malachi. So part of the reason we're not going to spend as much time on this is that in two weeks, we're, we're going to really hone in on it. Uh, but for now, look at verse 17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Which has got to be one of the most obnoxious replies in all of scripture. <laughs> By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, Israel's words, their speech reveal that they don't really know God. They don't really believe his word. They don't really walk in his ways. Because if they had been committed to God's word, they would have read Psalm 5. Which says that God does not delight in evildoers. What Dave read for us earlier. God does not delight in wickedness. While evildoers may appear prosperous in the here and now, that does not imply that God approves of evil or that God is absent and unaware of their evils. Now, Israel fundamentally misunderstood her God such that they thought that, that God approved of wrongdoing. You know, and it's a sad reality today that there are some Christians and churches who do the same thing declaring that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. The righteous do indeed sometimes ask, where is the God of justice, right? The Psalms are actually filled with the righteous saying that. I wonder if you've prayed that. A hope-filled, humble question. A plea or a lament. But, but here, for the Jews in Malachi's day, it is a boast. Where is the God of justice? To which the Lord responds in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. In short, you want to know where I am? You wonder what I think about all that is going on in Jerusalem and in your society and in your hearts? Well, buckle up because I am coming. Before I come, I'll send my messenger. In chapter four, uh, this messenger is described further. He is described in Malachi four as Elijah, 
which the New Testament very clearly uh, identifies as John the Baptist. You see, John came came to prepare the way of the Lord. That is, he came to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus. Yahweh says, the Lord says here in Malachi, there's a messenger and then I come. And then we come to the New Testament, we get a messenger and then Jesus comes. Because Jesus is God. He is the Lord of Israel. We'll consider this more in two weeks. Uh, But for now, the Lord promises his presence. He will come. But it won't be in the way that Israel expects. So we read in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. You know, Israel thought, man, won't it be great when God shows up? He's going to vindicate us and give us power and honor and glory. Man, it's going to be great. But just as Israel misunderstood her Lord, so she misunderstands what would, impe- what would entail of his appearing. For God is indeed the God of justice, which means that when the Lord came, he wouldn't simply accept Israel's sins and iniquity and say, no biggie. No, he comes like a refiner's fire. He comes to purge and to cleanse his people. He comes to purify them. Just like a refiner uses an incredibly hot fire to smelt away the dross and leave a pure alloy. So the Lord will remove the dross from Israel's life. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Verses three and four reference God's purifying work beginning with the priests of Levi. And this isn't surprising because as we've seen in previous weeks, that's just what the focus has been on. As the leaders of God's people, they especially needed reformation. And and so when the Lord comes, the result is that at the end of verse three, they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. They were bringing bad offerings. God will come leading them to give pure or righteous offerings Well, how does God purify his people? It's just what we considered in Titus 2, our assurance of pardon. God, our Savior, has appeared, just like he said he'd do in Malachi, in the person of Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. A Christian, you have been saved so that you would live a life pleasing to God. You're not saved by your works, you're saved by grace, but you are saved for good works. On this first day of the Lord, when Jesus came in 30 AD, he came not to bring judgment, but salvation. Uh, He came as the messenger of a new covenant, a covenant on the basis of grace and not on works. The Lord Jesus came so that 1 Peter 2.5 would come true in Trinity Church of Bedford and in every other church that you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This is, this is true of, of the people in this room. If you're a believer, if you're part of Trinity Church of Bedford, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, brothers and sisters, now because of the work of Christ, now you have been purified and granted his righteousness so that now your life can be one of sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. But for the religious hypocrites of Malachi's day and our own day, 
the Lord's appearing is not good news. So our passage concludes in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Just as the Lord was a witness earlier, testifying against those who divorced their wives, so here the Lord is witness again. The word for judgment at the uh, beginning of verse 5 is actually the same word that the people had asked about in their question in verse 17, where they say, where is the God of judgment or justice? And so the Lord definitively answers. He says, I will draw near. God takes his worship seriously. That's what we've seen in previous weeks. And he also takes seriously how you treat other people. Uh, Whether you're an adulterer or you swear falsely or you oppress the poor, or take advantage of the lowly. God will be a swift judge against such evil. You know, why do people do these evil things? Well, it's what we see in the last clause there, that last thing, that last attribute. The Lord says, they do not fear me. Isn't that interesting? In previous weeks, God's been calling the Levites, fear me, fear my name, honor my name. And so you think, okay, fearing God is all about giving God the glory, right? Having a right recognition of who God is, a right response to him. It's the way that we love God. But here we see that fearing God has massive implications for how we treat people. All the horizontal sins are only a symptom, are only symptoms of a deeper underlying disease, which is a failure to reckon with God the Lord, a failure to understand and live as though the God of the Bible is who he says he is. He is as gracious as he says he is. He is as mighty and powerful and holy and righteous, as just and wise and good and true. He is exactly who he says he is. If you believe that, it will change your life. You won't treat people the same way. Because you know God's their maker. They're made in his image. He loves them. He he made them so you won't oppress them. You will serve them in your service of him. So beloved, as we conclude, where is the God of justice? The Lord promised his coming to his people Israel and indeed he has come. In the person of his son, the Lord Jesus came to the earth. He came to his temple. And there he found only hypocrisy and greed, divorce and pride. Yet in his love, he went to the cross and he bore the judgment of the God of justice that was due to sorcerers, adulterers, liars, criminals, divorcers, all of us who have failed to perfectly love God and love neighbor. On the cross, Jesus offered up his life as the perfect and righteous offering to purify us from our evil deeds. Where is the God of justice? Look at the cross. And there behold God's righteous indignation against sin. There behold his holy love on display. Jesus died so that God would be both the just and the justifier 
of all those who trust in Christ. Friend, if you've not believed upon the Lord Jesus, I do so today. And you can be adopted into God's heavenly family. Because friends, he's surely coming back. The day of the Lord will come. It will come suddenly and swiftly. And when it does, it will be both wonderful and terrifying. As one preacher said, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is God is here. The bad news is God is here. Have you been reconciled to this God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that because of Christ, we can now call you by that name. We who alienated ourselves from you because of our sin, we praise you for your love and grace. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you did not despise the cross, but that you willingly took it up for the joy set before you, that we might know you and treasure you and delight in you for all eternity. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you've made us alive and awake to these realities. We pray that we would be faithful in all that you call us to, in marriage, and parenting, in society, that we would long for the day when Christ would return. And Father, we pray that you'd send him soon. We pray this in his name. Amen.